following podcast is presented by Wellspring of Life Church, a community of faith, hope, and purpose. The late New Testament theologian and author, Herman Ritterbos, writes, For the sake of the kingdom, Jesus wants his disciples hang on to your seats now, to give up their rights, interests, benefits, and safeguards. Now, this is not saying that the kingdom of God consists in having no property or is the absence of rights. But it does mean that God's kingdom represents something higher than a hierarchy of human values and interests. And that the righteousness of the kingdom teaches us to subject everything to this. I don't know about you, but to me it sounds a whole, like Matthew, a whole lot like Matthew 6, 33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then what? All these things shall be added to you. And so not only did the Corinthian believers have a problem with moral looseness, but they were also filing meaningless lawsuits against each other. And Paul knew that it was a symptom of a bigger, much deeper problem. A few years back, well, it's been a lot of years kind of now, but I had a little 94 Toyota pickup. And it was a great little truck. It had like 278,000 miles on it by the time I was done with it. But at 178,000, it developed a little bit of a noise and it was kind of like overheating. And that little noise turned out to be a symptom of a great bigger problem. It had a bent rod because of a blown head gasket. <laughs> that little noise turned out to be a symptom of a bigger problem. How many of you have gone to the garage and had a mechanic tell you that little squeak? <laughs> well, it's, it's a bigger, bigger issue. In this passage, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, by the way. Paul is addressing a squeak. In Corinth, <laughs> some believers in the church were taking one another to court and doing that, as Paul says, in front of unbelievers. But that problem was just a symptom of something much worse. The Corinthians neither understood nor were they living the gospel message. Symptom bigger problem. How true this is of us today. Would you agree with that? We live in a sue happy society. Lawsuits abound, which would explain why the legal profession seems to be so market driven, evidenced by the never ending endless commercials <laughs> and billboards. We have a billboard in Grand Junction with the lawyer. He's holding out a baseball bat, and he refers to himself as the heavy hitter. <laughs> yeah, 
What we see today is nothing new. In the Greco-Roman culture that Corinth was a part of, lawsuits were a common scene. Sadly, as we have seen, the Christians in Corinth have been slow to abandon many of the sinful practices of their old life, of the secular society. And this business of civil litigation was no exception. They were continuing to be polluted by the world around them and I think really did had, had no idea of just how polluted they were becoming because of what they were allowing, because of their misunderstanding God's word and not living God's word. Combine the Corinthian Christians' enthusiasm, as we've seen earlier in our study, for rhetorical skill with their adoption of the culture's fascination with litigation and the gloomy result of believers suing believers in civil court was bound to infect the church, and infect the church it did. So Paul begins addressing this issue here in chapter 6 and in the first verse with the question, and the question will uncover the problem. The problem is initially mishandling disputes. So look at verse 1 with me. If any of you has a dispute with one another... Do you dare to take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? It's like Paul is saying in that language, if he were to be writing it today and using words that we use, terms that we use, it'd be kind of like him saying, really? <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. You can't be serious. So when we read this introduction to the topic of lawsuits here in chapter 6 amongst, amongst the church community, it probably would not be out of line for us to kind of visualize Paul as he's initially writing this with brows raised. <laughs> he can't believe what he has heard that they are doing. He is stunned by what they dare to do or in terms of the word dare that they have the audacity to take one another in meaningless, as a term he will, will, will find him using in a few verses, trivial cases before the ungodly. This word dare is a word that is referring to an arrogant boldness. I just want to pause a moment. I think today we live in a day where we need to have the audacity and dare to have a faith-filled boldness, and dare to live and honor God. What do you think? Yeah. May we dare. I dare you. <laughs> I double dare you to live in a way that honors God. So it's like Paul is saying that. It was inconceivable to him that a believer would actually take a dispute before the ungodly instead of before the church community, the, the Lord's people. Now, I realize, because I know what all of you are thinking right now. Yeah, but, right? Our, 
our most favorite word, but. <laughs> yeah, but. Now, I realize that we believers sometimes have legitimate legal needs. I get that. That necessitate trained and experienced professionals to help us work through complicated stuff like, you know, contracts or business ventures. As a matter of fact, Wellspring of Life Church, when it was beginning back in 2007, we obtained legal counsel in order to set up a 501c3. We, we couldn't do that on our own. We needed their help. No question about it, but it astounded Paul that brothers and sisters in Christ would take their civil issues before unbelieving judges. The concept of judgment here, I want you to see this, found in this verse, links it to the preceding material that we've been covering up to this point. For example, with regards to the man that we saw in chapter 5, the incestuous man, and to the Corinthian divisions, and the opposition to Paul and his ministry. You see, even though the Corinthians considered themselves wise, they did, didn't they? We, we talked about that. This wisdom that they thought they had had led to their divisions, had led to their being, can we just put it like this, being messed up. The Corinthians lacked discernment. They judged when they should not have, and they didn't when they should have. Now, I call that messed up. What do you call it? Like the unbelievers around them, the Corinthian Christians were, as we've been saying, taking their disputes with each other to the civil courts where unbelieving judges would judge their cases according to not God's word, but Roman civil law. And Paul is undone by it because whatever the issues were, he refers to them as trivial cases. And we see this in the next verses, verse 2 and 3. It says, or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge, and then here it is, trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Anticipating the objection that the Corinthian Christians were kind of buying into this idea that they weren't competent enough to judge legal or civil matters. Keep in mind now that these are folks who thought they were, they were all that, <laughs> thought they had all the wisdom they could use and never have, are now excusing themselves and thinking that they don't have what it takes to do this, so we need to go to the civil courts. Paul asked if they had forgotten two basic Christian beliefs that pointed to the contrary, whatever it was that they were thinking. Paul develops his dispute based on solid theological foundation. And here they are, Christian identity and their destiny. Identity and destiny. 
he begins by reminding them of who they are in Christ and who they're going to be <laughs> because of being in Christ. Judges not only of the world, but he says, but of angelic beings as well. Jesus himself taught that his followers would act as judges at the end time in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. He's, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. The language of the Greek Old Testament, which is known as the Septuagint, also implies, and we saw this in our study in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 22, where it says that judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. This future role of believers reflects that they will enjoy the honor of ruling with Christ after he returns. Judging a God-rejecting world, and it is believed that by most scholars that when Paul is referring to judging angels, probably referring to Satan and his fallen demons as well. This indicates that Paul believed that this demonstrated the church's ability, therefore, to be able to arbitrate and judge its own problems internally without relying on the ungodly. Paul's point is basically, in light of the privilege that will belong to believers in the future, they should surely be able to resolve ordinary Typical, trivial <laughs> disagreements. He says, competent to judge trivial cases here on earth, referring to the things of this life. This reference indicates that Paul is referring to what we call civil lawsuits. And I want to make this clear. He's not talking about criminal lawsuits. There is a difference. The Corinthians were so impressed by the false wisdom of their secular culture that they had forgotten the wisdom that Jesus Christ had given and provided his church. Besides, it was no secret that the magistrates ruling in the courts of that day were not exactly honorable. We'll look at that a little bit more in a little bit. Paul's point is that the matters under consideration were so minor that they didn't require the attention of legal experts. Paul wants them to realize because of their position in Christ, they had all the essentials necessary for arbitrating their own disputes amongst themselves. They needed only to apply what they already had, apply what God has already given them, and then with spiritual maturity, trust God with the outcome. Verse 4, I therefore, uh, or therefore, if, if you have disputes about such matters, 
Do you ask for a ruling from those who say of life, um, from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court. And this in front of unbelievers. Do you hear the language and do you, do you hear Paul's heart? It's like he's still appalled by the fact that they're doing this. What does Paul mean? Practically speaking, because Christians should see things in light of the kingdom of God and have true spiritual wisdom. Any follower of Christ, Paul is saying, should have greater wisdom and be a better judge than even the wisest of the unbelieving judges. Now, this does not mean that the parties in litigation will necessarily like better the judgments of the community of faith. It's not suggesting that so much as it is saying that they are too worldly-minded to even think that they will do better in a civil court. It doesn't mean that they should expect Christian judgments to surpass worldly judgments in righteousness as well as divine perspective. In other words, that is what they weren't looking at but should be what they're looking at. Because the church is so important and valuable appealing to public courts demonstrates a lack of respect to what and for what? What we saw back in chapter 3 when Paul was talking about the building of God the house of God, the temple of God, his church, right? So Paul is saying when you take that route, you are showing no regard. It is a lack of respect for the body of Christ because of how it's going to look in the unbelieving world. In fact, these, seems, these seem to have been the Corinthians' greatest problem. And may have been Paul's main point in this verse. In light of all of this, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, you who will one day judge the world, you will one day judge angels, how is it that you rely on the legal system of the world to judge yourselves? Even the person least esteemed, and the church has more wisdom available to them than the most highly esteemed of the world. Paul puts the perspective of the unregenerate, the unbelieving judge in proper place. The values and the virtues of the Christian faith sourced in love, centered on grace. Amen. Do not match the values and virtues of the civil courts. The church is governed by the rule of Christ, operating in unconditional love amongst the brothers and sisters. One commentator helps put it in perspective. 
from a mature, spiritually-minded Christian perspective, he writes, asking a worldly-minded non-Christian to settle disputes among believers who are to live according to Christ's otherworldly mandates is like entering a writing contest with judges who cannot read. <laughs> wow. The idea isn't only absurd, but as Paul says, it's shameful. Paul is reminding the Corinthian believers that the gospel is supposed to reconcile believers in fellowship with one another in Christ. Basically, he's saying, as we've been saying, what will the world think when it sees Christians appealing to those without the gospel to solve the problems that the gospel should be correcting? Paul is uncovering and revealing not only the mishandling of disputes, but as I said, an underlying problem, not living the gospel. Look at verse 7 and 8 with me. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Oh, wow. And then he really takes us to task because many of us get a little uncomfortable with this. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And everything within us all is going, no way. <laughs> They're not going to get the best of me. Right? Isn't that what our old nature wants to rise up and say? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brother's and sisters. Whew. In addition to our needing to get serious about taking care of judging our matters, using the gospel as our authority, the Corinthian believers were also to, as Paul has encouraged them, absorb the wrongs being done to them. It's kind of like Paul is saying, it really isn't the end of the world. Look at what they did to your Savior. Let's not lose sight of that. Be willing to absorb the wrongs done to them, to turn the other cheek, to go the extra mile. Basically, that which Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. Paul is calling them back to the higher standard of the Christian faith outlined for us in God's word. Paul told the Corinthians that rather than going through all of the legal hassles to defend themselves judicially, the better way was to trust the Lord to solve the problem. Paul is pointing out that anyone who brings a lawsuit against another person, at that point, it is really all about the win, right? You see, at that point, if you've got to that place, you're not concerned about justice. You're not concerned about 
how the body of Christ is, is going to end up looking in all this. You have absolutely no concern for the other person. It's all about, I'm going to win. Now, I'm back to the idea of in first century Corinth, the magistrates ruling in the courts were nowhere near even close to being honorable men. Why? Because they were known for taking a bribe. So why were the Corinthians, this is just my idea here, my thinking, my, my, my opinion, that uh, some of these Corinthians were actually using the civil courts rather than it being taken care of within the church community because it became all about the win. They knew that they could pay off a judge, get the ruling in their favor. But Paul says, you go that route, you've already lost. You've already lost. And in doing that, you have wronged and cheated your very own brother and sister in Christ. That makes sense? Because of the loss of personal testimony and corporate witness for the church. Realizing that that carries eternal weight. When we lose sight of that, we've already lost. The fact that there were lawsuits in the church demonstrated that the Corinthians had lost sight of some of the most basic and most precious principles by which they were to live. Christ taught his church all about the law of love, and James gives us that in chapter 2, verse 8. Paul continues, and Christians should serve one another, Galatians 5, 13, and that they should be a unified body in which every member working in harmony with one another, Ephesians 4, 16. Paul, no doubt, also has in mind our Lord's teaching, referring back to Matthew chapter 5, better to lose money. Better to lose possessions than to lose a brother or sister in Christ. For these reasons, and to protect the testimony of the church, it would be better, Paul says, to be wronged, to be cheated, than to struggle and to fight with one another. But instead... As he says, they were cheating and doing wrong to each other. And this is revealing not only were they mishandling disputes, not only were they not living the gospel, but also reveals a root problem. They were misunderstanding the gospel. Verse 9. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. Huh. And you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is Paul doing here? He has shift strategy, basically, to further contrast 
the values and lifestyles of unbelievers being contrasted with believers. Many of the sinful acts he lists are either sexual in nature or have to do with ill-gotten gain. And this further strengthens his case that Christians have no business taking their dispute before non-Christians. One of the reasons is obvious because of the contrast he just presented. Because those unbelieving judges, guess what they're very well caught up in? The list. Why would you want them taking care of you and bringing a ruling for you in that sense? When Paul states that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God, he is not implying that the Corinthian believers might lose their salvation. He actually explicitly states in verse 11 that some of them used to practice these things prior to their salvation. His point is that the believers, being in Christ and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, have access to more than enough wisdom to judge civil disputes among themselves as he makes that contrast between the two. Obviously, we must be discerning, alert, and ever mindful of human depravity. It must be held in check and kept from creeping into our faith communities. Amen? Yet, the way we go about it, the spirit with which we handle conflict, the attitudes we exhibit while working through the difficult process of reconciliation is where we too often abandon our Christian values and take up worldly practices and end up using them like weapons against each other. Instead of dealing with these things from a spiritual perspective, too often we press the issue from a strictly worldly legal standpoint. And even if we win the case, we don't walk away humble nor grateful. We walk away proud and emboldened, usually ready to strike the next person or group that crosses us. Here's what we need to know, church, and discover that God's approach is indeed countercultural. Radical. And almost because of that, unbelievable. It doesn't come naturally nor can it be implemented with a stubborn will or a proud spirit. Unselfishness, the idea that it is not about me, must prevail, has to prevail. A Christian approaching conflict resolution biblically must be willing to listen, to yield, to confess, to forgive, to submit, to release. 
and ultimately be willing to move forward advancing God's kingdom rather than ourselves. Because you see, that's what brings about the joy of restoration, strengthened relationships, and authentic fellowship. Humility replaces pride. Thankfulness cancels out arrogance. Mercy flies in the face of resentment. Love conquers all. To the extent you choose to be loving and holy is the extent to which you will be joyful and content. Conversely, to the extent you compromise love and holiness is the extent to which you diminish joy and contentment in your life. It really is that simple. And so, may our prayer continually be, Lord, may your love conquer me. And may your love conquer through me to the glory of your name and your kingdom. This is about you, God, and your church and the advancement of your kingdom, not me. Are we willing to live a life like that? Are we willing to dare to live in such a way that honors God, forgetting about ourselves, surrendered to him? Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And, and I'm saying that with, in, with this in mind, that sometimes your word speaks to issues that we get a little uncomfortable with because it's not what has become the norm in our world and sad to say, even in the church. But nevertheless, it is your word, and it is your word that we must obey. And so, God, I pray that you break through the barriers of whatever might be there that would cause us to resist the gospel message, that we would not fall into that which the Corinthian believers fell into, not understanding the gospel, not living the gospel as well. May we understand it. May we seek you and your word. And God, may we live the way you have intended us to live, reflecting you, Lord, making this all about you, especially in the day in which we live. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Wellspring of Life Church in Western Colorado. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please visit wellspringoflifechurch.com. So I will lift up.